Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. All right, friends. Well, we are back with another ESEC Insights today, and this is an exciting one because it's more than just Jim Maroney and myself. Peter Bowser's off traveling, doing his job. So that's good. And today we have external friends from Purim, and we have both Bob Z. Kraus, who's the COO and head of Americas for Purim, as well as Thomas Vinziano, who's the product director and head of North American product with us. So hi, guys. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Good morning. We get a nice upgrade to Peter Basler having Bob and Tom with us. Excellent. Appreciate that, Jim. He might listen, though, afterwards, Jim. He probably doesn't listen when he's on, but I'm sure he tunes in after the fact. So let's be nice. Peter, we miss you. Hope he's listening to it on the plane ride. Ruins. (laughs) All right. So next week, and probably when we release this podcast, it will be the start of RMA. RMA has had a hiatus post the pandemic, and it's probably now been almost three years since the last RMA conference. Looking at the agenda, there's a lot on there, and there's a lot that's changed and evolved in the marketplace over the past number of years. But one thing in particular is probably the intense focus on technology solutions. And so we thought we'd bring our friends from Pyram in today to chat with us about their perspective on the securities finance landscape, what's changing, how it's evolving, how various technology solutions are really driving further growth and opportunity in the market. And I thought I'd start there. And Jim, we can turn it over to you to kick off what you might be most interested interested to start with. Full disclosure, we did more prep for this podcast than we have for any other podcast or maybe all the other podcasts combined. Well, that's because we do zero prep for all the other podcasts. So <laughs> any prep at all is more prep. A three minute prep. But we three minute prep. Exactly right. Thank you, Bob and Tom, for joining us today. So let's talk about T1 and you gents focus on the US market. How do you think that's going to impact the market and what sort of technology solutions are going to be needed? to support that. You mentioned real-time versus legacy batch. Maybe just start there. And that might be something our clients, a lending client, might not necessarily be familiar with in terms of how batch works, how we interconnect with custodians, their custodians. Definitely. Thanks again for having us. This is going to be hopefully a very fun and informal and educational session with our folks from ESEC. So we're happy to be on. And just by way of background, I joined Pyramid May of 2021, having, having spent close to 22 years on the sell side at large universal banks, including Barclays and Scotia, all in the prime brokerage and financing space. And recently, Tommy V has joined us as head of product in North America with a deep background, SME knowledge and operations across repo, sec lending, and also agency lending, having joined us recently in July of this year. So yeah, I think, as I said, we just talked about before we got on the podcast, the evolution of the market and the SEC's broad agenda seems to be heavily focused on things, all things sec financing related, but specifically to T plus one. We do think it's a significant change for the market relative to where the market went five years ago when we moved to T plus two in the US. And what I mean by that is in 2017, September, T plus three to T plus two came into focus and went live. And even at the time being a market practitioner on the other side, I felt it was more behavioral in nature, whereas it was just kind of like, hey, there's a change, impacts the recalls. We lose a day, but it wasn't as significant. I just felt like the market just got on with it. We're moving to T plus one. I think it's much more technical in nature. Thus, it requires more time 
analyzing the operational processes with a focus around impacts to recalls, affirmations, increased emphasis on real-time automated solutions between the lender community, the borrowers. Jim, as you said, your underlying clients, your beneficial owners, and how to navigate that through the custodial networks, through your third-party agent lending platform, and how you and your clients, but also the borrowers have to kind of now be really acute in their processing and also the communication. So the current model of batch processing, we just took it for granted that there was enough time in the cycle. Now erodes to something very relevant in terms of you're not only losing a day, but now T plus one has forced the market to think about, well, what is the timing of recalls? When do they get issued? And what is that impact? Because as we all appreciate the value chain, it's not just the intermediaries in the middle, the lending agents and the borrowers, the dealers and the primes. You have end users, and then you have obviously the long asset holder who may be impacted by it. So I guess in a nutshell, we look at it, I look at it in saying something that was matter of fact and behavioral, as I said earlier, becomes very much more technical driven where real time becomes more important. And our solutions, plug for Pyram, but we do have what we call our live services, which are real time versus where the market in sec lending has been accustomed to dealing with is a lot of batch processing or stale processing, I'll call it. So that in a nutshell, I think is where I see T plus one. From market participants, we talk to clients all the time, Jim, we, we talked to you recently and some others in the market. And out of all of, I would say SEC's agenda items, T plus one seems to be the one that's getting the most attention from the market because the proposed deadline and Tom, right, we're on some working groups with the market led by SIFPA is September 2024. So although it seems we'll twist it, we're October 2022, two years away, planning is well underway in working groups covering the impacts of T plus one on the overall capital markets. But you know, as a specific to prime brokerage or SEC lending or SEC finance, that has been highlighted as an area of deeper dives that are required because it is going to be, we think, a more significant change than T plus two was. If you think about where we sit in that chain, and we're on the operational side. And so we see it as losing a day. But the cash market probably would love to move to a T0. But I wonder what it does to our business as you push towards real time. There is time needed. If you think about what we do, lending securities, specifically ESEC, we're third party. So we take from a custodian, we deliver to a broker, and we reverse out of that on a return or a recall. So we want to be as efficient as possible using technology like Pyram's. But we also want to have plenty of time to not make our product undoable, maybe. It'll be interesting to see the balance there. Do you think that the real-time services and some of the other changes that the market's preparing for will allow T plus one to work as intended without having to also adjust on the end user lender side? So the institutional investor that's doing, you know, the long holder that's selling in the market without having that long holder to have to change behavior on their communication and notification to any particular agent. I'll tell you what we think, but I'm curious what you think, I guess, as a technology provider, do you think all those solutions will allow that all to happen in a seamless, fluid way without having to adjust the timing of the front end timing? Honestly, both coming from agency lending operations for the last 11 years at various banks and stuff, I would say that there still needs to be some type of change from the beneficial owner side, right? You know, the idea of getting a T plus one sales notification needs to change. And I think especially when you operate in a third-party lending type scenario where you would then have to communicate with the custodians on the returns and everything like that, getting a T plus one notification is not going to work no matter what technology you put forward 
in the automation of the recall. So I think there will be an impact to the beneficial owners, to the long holders. I think they need to be more real-time as well in what they're doing from a sales perspective. And I know there's sometimes a reluctancy to that because they don't like to give away what they're doing, but I don't think without that adjustment, we're going to be able to manage it. T plus one sales notification on a T1 settlement is not going to work. Well, what do you think that actually means? Do you think it has to come through prior to close on trade or during the day on trade date? I think it has to come almost real time. I would say that okay. I during the day in flows, you need to see what is going on to get a, a good sales notification, yeah. especially mm-hmm. when you're looking at the workshops and you're looking at T plus one, and we still don't know when the cutoff is to the end of the day from a recall notification, right? They're not sure if it's going to be 930. They're not sure if it's going to be 11 o'clock. That's going to also create a problem. So you need automation there in order to be able to meet those deadlines when they come up with this. Is it a 930 cutoff? Is it an 11 o'clock cutoff? How are we going to get that communication? But then we can't be sitting waiting for sales notifications to come in in order to make to that deadline. So the automation needs that data and information on a real-time flow almost in order to really be effective. And I agree with Tom. I think the considerations for clients to look at the holistic events around the life cycle of transaction has become even of greater importance for businesses and clients to better manage and mitigate risk, right? And exposure. So this is a significant area and we're investing a lot of time on building out solutions specific to the recall process to help, I would say, make it more seamless, but obviously help firms reduce that risk and that exposure that may inherently just naturally pop up through a shortened cycle. So the holistic part of it around all life cycle events becomes even more paramount. So I agree with Tom and, and his assessment. He, look, and he comes as an SME living that space and you know, living in your world for many years. To get real-time trading data and information from lending clients seems unlikely, I think, right? Well, we get real-time data for some clients now. So unlikely, I don't think is fair, but that's not the majority, but it does happen with a lot of clients today already, just because that's how they set it up. And that's the easy, most efficient way for them to communicate. If they're already communicating on a more real-time basis to their custodians, then that's a copy of information to us. And that's good. It's all seamless and automated. But for a lot, yes, no, I think that is a change in process. But I guess the question is, is, Will they naturally through their normal, forget about lending for a second, through their normal just custody sale transaction process, would they already look to communicate those cells on a more real-time basis with the move to T1 anyway? And if so, then I think lending will go along with that and with that efficiency would Mm -hmm. be the thought that I would have. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree on that. I'm just a little bit more skeptical. I think that Lending and where we fit in investment management kind of products and what they do, we're a bolt on at the end. And so we're not the mandate and we're supposed to stay in the background, add some value, increase yield, whatever it is for that fund or that plan. But if they're required to be giving us real time, say they're in the middle of a sell program and give us real time data. I don't know if clients will look at that and say, "Hmm, I really rather wait till the end of the day and give you data. I don't know if we need some other solution. Maybe you don't want it to reduce the volume. You don't want GC lending to dry up because you can't do bulk lending because of the volume. And Tom's right. You can't have T1 notification. So we're certainly going to have to move that up. News to me, I didn't know people give us real-time trade data. Maybe I'm wrong. and just overly skeptical. Bob or Tom, what do you guys think? Yeah, look, and I think this is where some stuff processes may have to change 
So we're talking about the interaction between the market participants right now, yeah. lender, borrower, being very generic, as we call it, right, in the value chain. The action of the lender to notify and the ability of the borrower to consume or receive and process the emails or the recalls or it automatically comes paramount in this shortened cycle. So I guess it becomes then, well, what happens on the other ends that you're more involved in and then you rely on various custodians? So there's naturally kind of gaps there, I'm sure. And I think some of those things have come up on some of the initial calls was, well, how does it work for an agent lender that is also custodian versus how does it work for an agent lender who is not the custodian? And where's the timing gaps around the notification process and the sales and how does that flow through naturally? So yeah, we're looking at the eroding timeline now plays a part, not only in how you all get your messaging real time or end of day, and then how that's communicated out to the marketplace. Now the market has to react, right, Jim? You have to yeah. source and cover collateral obligations that are under requirement. You know, there's obviously client dialogue or maybe internal dialogue that's happening around certain positions. Does GC just become more fluid because you guys are doing a lot of fun switches behind the scenes? Are you guys accelerating that a little more or making that more automated? I don't know how it's run now. So I think there is a lot, right? Because you don't want to kill certain aspects of the market. And that's all intrinsically linked, we think, to just straight through processing and automation because when you get into things like mark-to-markets, recalls, callbacks, contract compare, fund switches, loan allocations, the plethora of post-trade solutions that we live and breathe every day, and quite frankly, are market-leading in many respects because, again, the near real-time or close or real-time capabilities, that comes all into focus. So yeah, as we focus on recalls and we're building solutions around that and involved in the T plus one working groups, and mindful Canada will be moving to T plus one as well, right? So we're speaking US specific. And then let's think about the rest of the world goes. And then next question is, or what happens? How quickly can you get to T zero? I think we all appreciate you got to walk before you run, right? This is kind of the approach that the market's taking, which technology plays a huge importance into that. So we feel there's an obligation here as market participants, but we all feel working together through our client working groups, our design partnership groups. And if we can solve for things that may not be naturally inherent to how we're thinking about or how the market's thinking about what's taking place, but there may be avenues to pursue, as you said, for your business that may be different than a large custodial lender for that matter. And then you flip to the borrower's side. Again, they're at the mercy of timing. And when is that timing going to come? Is it coming at midnight? Is it coming overnight? Is it coming at some conversations at 9 p.m. at night? Like, well, how do they then support a recall being issued? Right. Right. So notified. So again, not to belabor that, but we do feel like this is a significant shift versus the T plus two because this now gets people closer to that. Well, there hardly is any room here for failure. That's all really interesting. But one of the themes that you've brought up now a few times of the whole batch versus real time, when we're talking about it in a T plus one settlement perspective or changing to that, but the other things that I think you've fairly touched on, maybe we can dig into it more is thinking about real time versus batch when it comes to the risk management oversight on lending transactions. And so the collateralization process, the daily mark to market process, the fact that marks on collateralization are being done currently based upon the prior day's closing price versus how might that price change intraday if markets are really volatile. What does that mean in terms of counterparty risk management, things like that, loan exposures? What are your views there and how do you see the market evolving and what's realistic in terms of expectations on when that might happen? That's a great question. I think it's come up. I'm going to flip to Tom quickly because as a former tri-chair of the RMA's Ops and Tech Committee, 
he was involved in working groups around real-time mark-to-markets or intraday mark-to-markets. So just in terms of perspective, and I know Jim and I were joking around a little bit, we like to trade or exchange trading stories and war stories of years past. But if you think about the global financial crisis of 2008, I remember being on the desk and managing the SBL business and saying, well, how can I manage my exposure on transactions when I am worried now that a counterparty, a borrower may go default or someone on the other side may be insolvent, right? So we started running real-time marks and managing that exposure almost immediately. But it was manual because we never had to think about it. So you have your credit groups, your legal team, and others looking at the business, and we have all the right tools to manage all risk and exposures that envelops the capital market structure. And then you get to something like a mark-to-market in securities market lending or margining for non-cash, and you realize that you're using stale data and stale pricing. So just looking back at that period of time, how come the market hasn't taken that as a signal to advance that agenda forward, right? Which to me, it's, do we only react in crisis mode, but now we're not taking that forward. And look, let's all be fair. There was a lot of other things happening and it took the market years to get out of that. But the batch in real time, if we have prudent risk management on every other thing we do, yet we still live in a world of staleness. To me, it's just something that I think the market has to get their head around and how do we promote that going forward? So I'll maybe flip it to Tom because you had some more intimate discussion in your working groups in your past. Yeah, the intraday mark conversations really came up, volatility 2020. Right. You know, look at March, April of 2020, the volatility, the infamous moves on certain stock and names that created a large intraday exposure gave a lot of the beneficial owners a worrisome concern about where their reinvest was besides, right? Because now you've got to reinvest going through, but you don't exactly know where your mark to market is and where your actual cash value should be on what's being lent versus your reinvest. So there was a lot of liquidity issues and things like that that went on. And so we started looking into how can we do more of a real-time mark-to-market intraday. And we started bringing some of the, at the time, from being on the agent lending side, the vendors in to see what they could provide from a real-time reconciliation situation. Are you getting updates to the lending transactions and the lending trades? One of the key pieces from Pyram from that perspective is they are in a real-time scenario. They are seeing all the DO orders and things like that. So there could be a reconciliation that comes in, let's say, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And you can then see where your overall exposure is and what are your latest transactions, latest returns, so on and so forth. But then the question becomes... What does your timing look like from a mark-to-market perspective? Because now you're at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You're looking at a cash reinvestment desk that is trying to lock in, understand where they're going, money markets, repo, any type of outright bilaterals, all the different types of concentration limits and things that are put forth by the lenders as far as what their reinvestment guidelines are. Can you hurt volatility by doing an intraday mark-to-market because you're not giving a good picture to the reinvestment guys, or are you helping out because you're getting a more accurate mark? And so a lot of the ideas around that were more along the lines of, we need to get a real-time reconciliation. We need to pick a point in time when we're going to call it the mark has to go through. And then we have to come up with different venues for how to do the mark. Can we actually exchange cash? Or should we be looking at the idea of, believe it or not, we got to the point of tokenization of cash just for the overnight exposure until you can actually get the movement of cash so that you're not affecting the cash reinvestment desk. Those were the types of things that were being tossed around. That probably takes some time to get to. So it's not something I think would get adapted and quickly move 
But that is where I believe we will wind up getting to when you think about it, because from the lender side, stale pricing, your credit department's probably using a mark-to-market price of what today's close is, but you're looking at a trade that was priced based on yesterday's market close. Your RWA calculations are always in question. You're always looking at working with your internals to try and say, no, I'm not really exposed here. This calculation is off or you have to come to an agreement. I've seen that quite a bit internally within systems because you know, you've know you got credit guys that are looking at, okay, here's my close that hit the system today, but you're trades are marked to marketed based on yesterday's close. And all of those different pieces have to change. So it's a work in progress that would have to happen. And I think there will become a more highly focused to it once you get past this T plus one and you start to get into some more decentral clearing type scenarios from a regulatory perspective. And I think also it's beyond mark to markets. There's other aspects of the business, right? The whole thing that Tom mentioned around risk weight and capital. You know, the market is very dynamic where sometimes it's a balance sheet exercise, sometimes it's a leverage exercise, sometimes it's a capital exercise that people are trying to solve for. I think about ALD, it's the same, same thing, right? It's a day lag. Yeah. So when you start looking at this in many aspects, that's why I kind of banner, I'm going to say batch versus real time or stale versus real world or whatever you want to call it, staleness. The intraday or end of day or some other point in where we live now, the market has to evolve. Tom kicked off by saying 2020, this is where this came from. I started the conversation by saying in 2008. So now we went 12 years. And Burke, you started off by saying, you know, this is the first RMA since 2019. I co-chaired that conference. And I remember we talked about, okay, we're a decade past the crisis. Little did we know there was this other event happening called COVID that was going to hit us all, the world, like a ton of bricks. And we kind of advanced in some areas from 2008 to 2020, but other areas we did not. So Tom mentions, yeah, this kicked off in 2020. I'm saying we were trying to do this in 2008 or before. So maybe the time is right where this agenda continues to move forward. And maybe that does tie back. Again, T plus one becomes almost real time in many aspects. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. We know though, our firm looks to solve for a lot of market inefficiencies and non-differentiated tech to make you all better, to make you more straight through processing, more automated. We handle that lift and the burden, creating that network, allowing market participants to continue looking at other parts of your business to grab margin. When we look at stuff like that, 12 years in the making or 10 plus years in the making, and we're talking about mark to market 2020 memes, some people may think that's the first time we ever talked about it as an industry, which is not the case. I agree. And I think Tom might be right. I did a call yesterday on the digital agenda of agent lenders in our business with a couple of participants, and we were talking about digital ledgers, and it's probably closer than we think in terms of a solution, but it's not tomorrow. And so right. when I think about lessons learned, Zeke, from 08 or 2020, maybe real-time marks, yes, we got to get there, but we're not going to get there now. So maybe a stopgap is dynamic margining, and maybe you need to take haircuts on volatile assets a little bit different. But you got to draw the line in the sand, like Tom was describing, like at some point you have to draw the line in the sand, no better time than end of day. Margining through the Lehman crisis, it showed it worked in aggregate. It worked on a balanced book where you were properly covered. And so if dynamics in the market have changed, maybe in large part because of technology, and you see this volatility intraday up, down, moving, the Dow opens up or down 1% every day, that used to be a major move. Now it's the weekend. So maybe we need to evolve, but I think the stopgap might be dynamic margin. Jim, I couldn't agree more. And I think I said, we kind of 
put a bow on it. It's dynamic margin, but it's increases in automation. It's focusing on efficiencies, incorporating more data and technology in a meaningful way, right? As I said earlier, are we making up for lost time here? Because this seems to be a solution for everything in the market, but there's not one size fits all. So having the community that we have, I'm fortunate to have in securities financing through industry conferences, through industry associations, right? Through working groups, allows us to really be forward thinking and no better time than to do that now. And it's happening in all aspects of the repo market. It's happening, right? The SEC came out recently around clearing of US treasuries to mitigate risk and you're making all repos maybe through a CCP type of model. So again, not looking at that as the panacea and the end all be all, but something like replatforming and changing this overnight, it's a monumental lift. So while I do appreciate there is stuff closer than we think, I still think we're solving for things that we should have solved for years ago. There's a little bit of a work in progress here to be done. And we all appreciate regulation is, acts as a significant driver and change because that's where budgets go. That's where technology focus becomes. So everyone has to live and meet the deadlines and the regulatory requirement. We're excited to be in this position to help the market. But we also know that the market is excited and is looking for change. And I think that also comes with fresh ideas, new people entering the space, new companies or new desks being developed, how they're thinking about building a business today versus building a business of yesteryear. And maybe all of those things coming together, the confluence of all that stuff allows us to promote this change and to move forward. So yeah, definitely watch the space. And we'll continue working with partners like you and others to help us become smarter, right? And listen to what your client is saying so we can help solve those issues. I've got a dumb question I'd like to ask these guys. Well, we always have time for your dumb questions, Jim. So let's, let's oh, is this settle. the, du- is this the segment called right the in. dumb question segment by it JJ is. Maroney? Okay. Well, this is- <laughs> and by the way, thanks for dressing up today. Were yes. you in your backyard cutting up firewood before this? I don't know. What were you doing? He actually, was it called Jim? Lumberjack? Lumberjack chic. Chic. Okay. It's my new COVID look. Yeah. So thanks for that, Zeke. Really, we'll have you back. <laughs> Maybe a monthly session. Podcasting with you today. All right, now onto the game. Dumb my, questions by Jim. My dumb question is for you two as a fintech institution, as a solutioner for this market. And I've sat on a few of your working groups. And a one word that comes up a lot is interoperability. Mm-hmm. And so when you build a product, when you solution for us or for our counterparts or our peers, how do you think about where you sit? How do you think about that interoperability? Do you Say, I want all the market to run through me. We want to work with, because there's three, four, five fintech firms building solutions, working on solutions. It's kind of an unfair question, I guess, but how do you think about that in terms of when you build a product? If you're a product manager, Tom, when when you look at a product, do you think, how do we fit in? We could do all of this. We should do some of this, let others do that. Like, Does that come into play? Yeah, I would say the first stab and the first look you take at it is the solution can it be globalized, right? Because like the first thing you want to do is make sure that you're looking at it from a holistic picture and you want to make sure you're covering all of the markets. You don't want to just build something that's market specific that can't be scaled out. Because as we could see, right, you get SFTR and CSDR and now you start to see regulations starting to come in. 10C1 might be the US version of SFTR. So therefore looking at everything, you make sure it's scalable across the board so that as things come out in other markets, you're able to globalize it. You know, you're not asking some Somebody to bifurcate their process on the client side saying, okay, we solve for this market, but for this market, go here. That's the first piece that we would look at. And then the other thing is, you know, where can we broaden our horizons to be able to manage where we are experts and realize 
from a client perspective to help our clients where we might need to be interoperable with other people out there in the marketplace just to give a holistic global approach where everybody could see things in one spot. And the other point on that, and I think Tom is spot on, it's global and scalable. So for years, let's think about it. We all have the, Tom, myself and others on our team have lived on the other side, right? So we weren't born in technology. I barely can turn on a computer, but we are SMEs having and appreciating how businesses are built. And it becomes my old shop. We used to call it our management team, a bowl of spaghetti. You have all of these systems that have a purpose but they don't connect or communicate. So what do you do? You solutionize it by doing creative things within your own tech team, or you're building macros, or you're developing some sort of programming to make those things work better. One of the areas where Pyram continues to excel, which I didn't appreciate until I got here and looked under the hood, because as a former client, you don't see it, is over 22 plus years at our company, we're 22 years old, going on a 23rd year, how connected we are and seamlessly integrate, not only for our clients, but to the network of others around us. And what I mean by that is, we like to say we're the automation hub. We sit in the middle and it's just not we're connecting clients and helping clients reconcile between party A and party B, but we're also connected to maybe their backends and their other internal systems. So we look at it as we're kind of advanced in that agenda. The other aspect too is, let's be fair, that the market would want people to get together to kind of talk to bring better value, right? So yeah, as much as we compete, we're very open-minded and we've been the beneficiary of more inbound calls around people wanting to work with us and think about creative solutions because, because maybe their clients are demanding it. And this isn't just an SBL, right? This could be in repo, it could be in our collateralized products, it could be in anything that we offer within our suite. So we've always been open to that selfishly. And you've heard me say this, you know, I want everyone to run through us and we're advancing our agenda in North America and the U.S. specific in a more meaningful way. And we do think we bring real value, a value proposition that's different than others in a very effective way. And we do stand behind, we build on top of things, right? We don't leave things that are stale and hope the market just continues to adopt them. We kind of build in tandem with our clients and we move forward. And if one of those things is, are you interoperable with vendor X or an internal solution that we have? Yeah, we'll by all means explore that. So yeah, I think it's the bowl of spaghetti just kind of grew out of the market growing and being dynamic and everyone having to adopt these different products. And one day you realize, wait, how do I better manage my book globally? Well, if there's one platform that could do that, why wouldn't I want to look at that as a solution provider, right? So we kind of look at it a couple different lenses, selfishly, but also as a benefit to the market and how we can advance our value as well. Yeah. It's not as simple as just building a better mousetrap or building no, it's, it's not anymore. It's not. And look, we've all been familiarized with that stuff. There's a lot of great stuff out there. The reality is, could it ever be commercialized? Will it ever work beyond just for that individual client? And then how does that really help you grow and expand? Because you know, the world is interconnected. We kind of bring that to the market from what Pyram's done over again, two decade plus. Jim knows that I'm big on acknowledging and celebrating birthdays. I just want you to know. And I also want to acknowledge that Pyram's 22 going on 23 year birth year or decades old now matches ESEC Lendings. So ESEC Lending Very also much so. is in its 22nd going on 23rd year of existence. So maybe I a re- joint celebration at some point. Is I was in one, I agree, Brooke, and we'll be all Ooh. for it. We should celebrate together, if not at the RMA, I'm at another time. But I do remember I had just started at Barclays and a former boss said, hey, I have a meeting with a gentleman named Ty Danko. He's oh, trying yeah? to build this platform. <laughs> do you know anything about it? And we were all open because at the time, as we were building our business at Barclays, we were trying to differentiate ourselves and we embraced early on. 
ideas that weren't just the norm. So we were trying to do stuff internally and ESEC Lending comes along with this value proposition that was so unique and different than what the market has been used to. So, you know, we celebrate your birthday as well and yeah, we'll make sure we do it together or at some point in person. Good. Okay. Well, I like it when people sing happy birthday, just for the record, Bob. So we'll, well make sure that happens. I have no trouble singing for anything. We could do that. And and before we close here, I always just like to kick back. I wanted to pose a question to you all. Like we talked about regulation. What is at the forefront of your mind in terms of ESEC lending? What do you believe will be the biggest impact to SEC finance? I'm thinking there's a plethora of things out there. Some of them will come to fruition. Tom mentioned 10C-1. We talked about T plus one. There's the MPX, the proxy. There's a bunch of different things. So what's concerning for you all? What keeps you up at night, maybe around regulation that you can educate us on? On um, 10C1, I think we will learn more when the SEC comes back to the market with more guidance and actual formal rules on it. And I do think it'll be something that we manage and have to deal with as a community of market participants, providers, you know, perhaps and lending clients, you know, to a certain extent. But that doesn't keep us up at night, I guess, at least not currently, and hopefully won't. But, you know, it'll be a big project, I'm sure. It'll probably be akin to what we all went through with SFTR. You know, I know there's a lot of comparison that people are drawing. So we'll sort of manage through that when that occurs. I think the biggest thing, and we're in a unique position as ESEC lending because we don't have as an agent lender the same regulatory constraints mm -hmm. that the big global custodians do when it comes to regulatory capital charges and calculations and whatnot. But we see the impact happening all around us. So it's happening with the borrowing community. It's been happening for years. We're seeing it on the bank side. It's becoming more and more of a ever-present theme in conversations with beneficial owners. And I think because of that, we both see opportunities there just because of our position in the marketplace. And so that's great. So there's places where we can perhaps capture balances and manage balances for lending clients that others might not want to, or might be turning away from, or it's just too costly for their business. So that's an opportunity for us. But I think in terms of the risks also will be where do certain lending clients end up in terms of the prioritization list with the dealer community and when Basel IV rules are fully formed and finalized, what does it look like and how bad are those impacts to certain counterparts slash lender combinations? And I think that what we're seeing is, is there anything yet to still be done? Is there any influence that even the lender community can have in this giant ecosystem of securities <clears throat> finance to perhaps lobby and have a voice with the regulators when the time comes to make sure that they're aware of what the potential impacts are? in terms of liquidity, in terms of transaction opportunities for the buy side community. So I think that's, you know, and again, I don't know that that keeps us up and I, at least not me, I sleep pretty well. Maybe Jim, Jim tends to be grumpy in the morning. I've noticed. So he might, he might be kept up at night. I don't know. But <laughs> Correlation to my sleep patterns. I agree, Brooke. I think what you're saying is RWA, we're leaning into what we think are our strengths, Zeke, and we're a different model. We auction assets, we're disclosed, we're segregated. So there's no omni-structure. There's no need for an RWA bucket if you're doing business with ESEC because the way we do our business, there is transparency there. So that, or even if it's timing and short sell bans or markets where they steal your firstborn if, if you fail to return a security, all of that, I think, plays into our strength, which is you know, we think auction first, which is a bilateral relationship between two people. It's a partnership many times for a year between a borrower and a, you remember, I mean, you were yes. on the other side. And so there are inherent benefits to that, that you don't see on paper. And some of that might just be that partnership relationship, the trust. And so I think as we 
And Brooke alluded to the fact that we're a trust company and that we have a slightly different regulatory constraints and non-constraints. I think we are adapting with the market and it's keeping us busy. So it doesn't keep us up at night, but it is kind of exciting. It's generic in nature. We're not generally talking about specials and meme stocks and all the exciting stuff that you see on CNBC, but I think it's the blocking and tackling and we're positioned well, so long as we get our technology solutions in place. So just keep on working hard for us, Tom. Absolutely. We'll have very little sleepless nights, Zeke. That's great. And I appreciate that. Yeah, we have our ears open, Jim. You wrapped it up nicely around the binding constraints. I like to say we all may have different DNA, but we kind of suffer from the same general things in the marketplace that we're adapting for. So that's being on the technology side or being on your side or on the borrower side, dealer side, prime side, repo side, wherever you may live in this ecosystem. Ultimately, the market has to solve for these challenges that collectively impact folks, but of folks of different sizes, different structures in different ways. So yeah, that's what makes it exciting too. Maybe yeah, it's not sleepless nights. It's some could be advantageous and others going to have to think about pivoting and changing their model. They want to have a continuation doing the business that they do. So yeah, I think, look, we appreciate your honesty and transparency around that because most people have similar concerns that you all raise. It's either the implementation of Basel IV, it's T plus one, which we've beaten to death quite nicely. And then it's the 10C1 if that would come through and people are like, well, we've kind of solved for SFTR. Isn't 10C1 a lighter version of it? But you know, who knows, right? And maybe less feels required, but who knows what end state is. And all of those we feel we're in a good position to help the market and help our clients move their agenda forward. So that's what we live and breathe for. That's why I made the leap over from that side to this side. Good. Well, we're glad you did and glad to have spent the time today talking. So thanks, Zeke. Thanks, Tom. And yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you at RMA. And for those tuning in, if we haven't already said hello, please say hello to us and we welcome seeing everyone at RMA. Same here. Thank you for having us. And yeah, we hopefully get invited back for other sessions. And Jim, I don't know what you're going to be wearing for the holidays, but I can't wait to see that outfit, that ensemble. He has a great plaid jacket. This is his non-plaid jacket. He has a great plaid one, which really is a shirt that he pretends is a jacket, just to be clear on that. (laughs) (laughs) We make sure you get this at some point as well. Yes. To our listeners, Bob is sporting very nice Pyram attire. He has a nice away gray vest, we understand, with the Pyram logo representing the US of A nicely for Pyram North America. So we all expect something similar in our holiday gift packs. You got it. (laughs) Well, listen, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you all next week. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting us. And we look forward to, again, continuing on with some more conversation. Great. Uh, This was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Really, really great, intuitive, excellent conversations. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.